Sarah and I watched a PBS documentary this week that detailed the current epidemic in our country. It talked about how contagious the disease is, how it's destroying people, how we need to find a way to inoculate ourselves to it. Uh, This documentary ended with steps on how to battle the epidemic. Oh, by the way, I, I never mentioned to you the name of the disease that's ravaging our country. It's affluenza. <laughs> Were you thinking it was something else? Most Americans have at least a mild case of affluenza. The term originated in the last century and it was defined in a book entitled Affluenza, the All-Consuming Epidemic. Affluenza is simply an unhealthy relationship with money. Some of you are immediately thinking, Kyle, I don't have affluenza. Are you sure? Do you know how to detect it? Do you know its symptoms? Just as it's hard for a fish to taste the water it swims in, it's hard for citizens in affluent societies to realize just how eat up with affluenza they are. We have built one of the most wealthiest nations the world has ever known. But despite all the affluence, our culture makes us feel that we never have enough. We never have the right stuff. We never have the latest craze. We throw things away, not because they are broken, but because they send the wrong signal about us. The culture tells us when to stop wearing uh, bell-bottom pants and when to start wearing straight leg jeans. Culture told women when to stop having that poof on the top of their head. It was so popular in the 80s that my mother still rocks. Uh, Culture told some of you when to stop wearing the big platform shoes and when to start wearing athleisure. Athleisure, that's, that's where you always dress like you just came from the gym. Culture tells you that you need thin eyebrows. So you pay to get them waxed. Ten years later, it's bushy eyebrows you need. In Oklahoma, there was a time when their state culture said the men should wear mullets. Let's be honest, it's still that time right now in Oklahoma. Uh, Ladies, you need big bag purses. No, 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 no. Now it's small clutch purses. Affluenza. Swap your perfectly good car for a new car because what you drive says a lot about you. Affluenza, rip out that perfectly functional kitchen and replace it with a modern one. Culture is simply passing affluenza onto you, feeding it to you, injecting it into your veins. This is not junk science. It's proven that you're catching this disease as you watch advertisements on TV. As you scroll Instagram, as you walk in malls, masks are are really beneficial for some epidemics, but not this one. You can catch this one through the eyes. It's extremely contagious. You can catch it anywhere. And it's also hard to fight because it mutates frequently. Australian economist Richard Dennis defines affluenza well when he says... Affluenza is that strange desire we feel to spend money we don't have, to buy things we don't need, to impress people we don't know. 
We need to realize that Christianity is not a vaccination for affluenza. Which is why God has written for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6 an ideal text for battling affluenza. The truth is that every person is terminally infected with this disease from his birth. Solomon gives you a theology to combat affluenza. And he does it in a unique way. You may be wondering why I'm, I'm choosing a textual unit that covers part of chapter 5, but not all of it. And part of chapter 6, but not all of it. I'm choosing this section because Solomon deliberately structured it as a chiasm. Now, what you're seeing on the screen behind me is, is a chiastic structure. This is a literary technique that shows where the story begins, where the story ends, but more importantly, it shows you where to place the emphasis. It gives you the apex of the story. And notice the graphic. The first example and the last example go together. People who cannot be satisfied. The second section and the sixth section are verbal pairs. People who cannot enjoy. The third part and the fifth part are twins. But not identical twins. What is good and what is bad. And notice it forms a, a greater than symbol. Pointing you to the guts of Solomon's teaching. The most important statement is in the middle. Here's another way to look at it. Each phrase is a stair that you climb to reach the pinnacle, the main point, the climax. Now, American minds are not used to learning this way. We're used to learning where the climax is at the end. The pinnacle of the story is right before the credits roll. And that's because we have different teaching techniques than the ancient world. Now, I could use this passage and teach you in the manner in which you're used to being instructed. I could cover 1A and uh, A1 and A2 together, and then cover B1 and B2 together, and then cover C1 and C2 together, switching back and forth between chapter 5 and chapter 6. That, that way I would, I would teach the pinnacle at the end of the story. And that's what normal people do with this passage. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to keep the ancient teaching technique preserved for us in the scriptures. There are three symptoms of affluenza before you reach the cure of affluenza at the peak. The writer then gives you a few more symptoms after showing you the cure. And I will do the same. Uh, symptom number one of affluenza. You're willing to hurt relationships, hurt family time, and even hurt people. To acquire more money. Greedy people. Hurt people. That's what Solomon says in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor. And the violation of justice and righteousness. Do not be amazed at the matter. Solomon is describing the typical unjust government of his day. He says you don't need to be surprised when you see governments oppressing the poor to line their own pockets. Expect it. Learning to live with unjust, greedy, bad governments is something that Israel had a PhD in. 130 years under the Assyrians. 65 years under the Babylonians. 
nearly 200 years under the Persians. Solomon uses an interesting word, province. Province is not a word we often use in the States. In Canada, where my wife is from, they have provinces, not states. But province is not just a Canadian word. It's an Esther word. It's used nearly 40 times in the book of Esther. And Solomon borrows it here to illustrate that, that you need to learn to live under greedy governments while trusting God like Esther and Mordecai did. The verse states, One high official looks after another high official, and this continues all the way up the chain of corruption until it reaches the king. And what is the king doing in the end of verse 9? But this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, here's what I found. There are generations of scholars scratching their head wondering what is going on in verse 9. But it looks like the king has bought up all the land and is letting it lay fallow. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, God's ancient welfare system worked like this. The poor were able to glean, harvest the corners of the field. And they were also able to, to, to collect what dropped off the wagons while harvesting. So the king is depriving the poor by not working the fields. Rich kings taking advantage of poor commoners is everywhere in the Bible. King Ahab stole poor Naboth's vineyard. King David stole poor Uriah's wife. While reading this verse, you get the sense that Solomon, a king himself, is longing for another king. Our heart yearns for a better king than this corrupt one. We yearn for a better government than this dishonest one. Years after Solomon wrote these words, this longing still rang in the hearts of God's people. So he revealed it to one of his prophets, Isaiah. And said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back as a righteous king, leading a perfect government, a theocracy. Now, Solomon shows you greed on a governmental level, but governments are made up of individuals, and you should know what greed produces in individuals. I read a, a secular study that showed, on average, individuals with wealth respond with less compassion and are less attuned to signs of suffering and discomfort in others. And I know what you're thinking, Kyle, I'm not wealthy. But you are. You live in one of the wealthiest countries in history. To third world countries and most of Jesus' followers around the world, you are rich. Rich, rich. You don't decide if you're rich or not. History did that for you. The psychologist Keltner found that wealthy people tend to be more narcissistic and feel more entitled than their peers. He even said individuals focused on money exhibit more selfish and unethical behavior. For example, cheating to win, lying in negotiations, Taking candy that isn't for them. <laughs> Cutting off cars at an intersection. These studies even showed that as people become wealthier, activity in the portion of their brain that displays empathy for others 
is suppressed. And if you're not careful, money can do that to your soul. William Wilberforce, the British politician, who was the leader in the movement to abolish slavery, said, Prosperity and luxury gradually extinguish sympathy and harden and debase the soul. John Wesley, a preacher in the 1700s, said, Wherever riches have increased, the essence of religion has decreased in the same proportion. Charles Simeon, strong English theologian, has my favorite quote on this when he says, Temporal prosperity is very unfavorable for spiritual development. Temporal prosperity is very unfavorable for spiritual development. Is your pursuit of money causing friction in your marriage? Are you willing to take a job with better pay even though you know it's going to hurt your family? Are you willing to sell products to people that you know don't need it, but you want more money? Are you willing to lose healthy spiritual church community chasing, chasing after more money? Symptom number one of affluenza, you're willing to hurt relationships, hurt family time, even hurt people to acquire more money. Symptom number two, when you love money, making money becomes addictive. Notice verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Do you have a love affair with money? Timothy in the New Testament says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Being rich is not sinful. Many rich people walked with God. Abraham, he had 318 people on his house staff. I'd say he's pretty rich. Jacob, Joseph, second richest guy next to Pharaoh. David, the author of this book, Solomon. Lydia in the New Testament, having large amounts of money is not sinful. It's just not simple. Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish philosopher, said, For a hundred that can bear adversity, there is hardly a one that can bear prosperity. Money complicates things for your soul. Historians say that in Solomon's day, international trade was booming. And apparently some people in the kingdom struck it rich. And the author's goal in this passage is to warn Israel of the vanity of pursuing wealth. The more you have, the more you want. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. That's why shows like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Are so popular. That's why we had the California gold rush, the oil bangs. That's why casinos are always packed. Wealth is very addictive. So there's spiritually negative addiction that can come with wealth, but there's also a practical negativity that comes with it. Notice in verse 7. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. 
I like this. The more food you have in your refrigerator, the more people will come over and eat it. You've heard the old saying, you never know how many friends you have until you bought a, a beach house. You, you win a lottery. If you win the lottery, I know you're Christian, so you don't play it, but let's just, let's just say for a moment, or if you did, you're donating it all to the local church, <laughs> like all good gamblers do. Uh, you win a lottery, and you'll see lots of crazy cousins start to come out of the woodwork. The more you have, the more people will come after it. Sponges, freeloaders, parasites who fawn over you. Leeches who do not suck your blood, but suck your money until no more runs freely in the veins of your account. Aiken pointed out Bernie Kosar, the NFL quarterback. He made millions in his playing career, and then he made millions after his playing career in business ventures. And he spoke about the time in his life when he was paying 60 different phone bills. People will come after it. In addition, when people become rich, they suddenly have new expensive needs. A maid to clean the house. A landscaping crew to keep up with the yard. A nanny to watch the kids. An accountant to keep the books. A cook to make the meals. A broker to invest the money. And all these people need to be paid. So Solomon says in verse 12, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Solomon looks out the window of his palace and he sees a simple day laborer checking in at 8 a.m. and then going to lunch for an hour and then clocking out at 5 p.m. And he looks at that guy and he says, that guy sleeps better than all of my rich friends. A free running paraphrase of this verse goes like this. Hard and honest work earns a good night's sleep, whether supper is beans or steak. But a rich man's belly gives him insomnia. Why does the day laborer sleep so well? Well, he knows he didn't rip anyone off. He didn't cheat or steal or do shady dealings. His conscience is clear, so he sleeps well. Hear me. Wealth increases anxiety. Solomon shows more danger of amassing wealth than any other biblical writer, except one, Jesus Christ. The more you have, the more you worry about. The more you have, the less you sleep. The rich worry about their riches. They fret whether their investments are safe. They watch the stock market like a hawk. They worry about their money slipping away. And that's why people typically become less generous to God's church the more they have. You would think the more money you make, the less you worry. But it seems to be the opposite. Meredith Melnick wrote an article entitled, Why Americans Are Among the Most Sleepless People in the World. Why does that article need to be written? Because compared to third world countries, you are richer than most ancient kings. I'm not saying money is evil. What I'm saying is money is a terrible pillow. It will not give you the rest you think it will. The only thing worse than the addiction that money brings is the emptiness that it leaves. 
Your soul was made for more. You don't need to leave here and and adopt a poverty theology. But you do need to work on being rich toward God. Making money can be addictive. That's why one of the qualifications for a pastor is that he not be a lover of money. Symptom number three of affluenza. You hoard something that has wings and can fly away. Verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Hoarding riches doesn't help you. It hurts you. When you hoard, you don't own stuff. Stuff owns you. We have bedrooms people never sleep in. Cars people never drive. Toys kids never play with. Clothes we've never worn. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus told. A guy started accruing a a lot of yield from his farm. So he kept buying up farm after farm after farm. and, And then suddenly he doesn't have enough barns to hold all of his crop. And so he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And then Jesus ends it by saying this, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and does not Rich toward God. Is it surprising to you that one of the great evils that Solomon lists under the canopy of the sun is hoarding riches? You've read the book, When Helping Hurts. Tony Morita said Solomon writes the book, When Hoarding Hurts. Don't hoard your wealth. Give it to the Lord's work. Be generous. Invest in God's investments. Money is like manure. If you pile it up, it will stink. If you spread it out, it will cause things to grow. You can worship God with your money, or you can worship your money. We have this Old Testament guy who is rich, and he's hoarding lots of money, and and, uh, to use New Testament language, he's building bigger barns. And then suddenly, in verse 14... And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Now, we don't know what caused him to lose all of his money. We don't know what caused all of his barns to be torn down. Maybe economic reversal, a dip in the Dow, or fraud, cheated out of his wealth. Maybe a gambling habit, or a painful misfortune like a fire, possibly a soured investment. Or maybe even a worldwide pandemic. The point is that overnight he went from a mansion to a mud hut. From satin sandals to bare feet. From silk clothes to tattered rags. There was a man in 1929. 1929 who went to a bank and took out everything he had. Which was $750,000. A lot of money in 1929. And he left with it in a big bank bag. While walking, someone robbed him and took the bag. Later that day, before he killed himself, 
the robbed man wrote in a suicide note. Everything I have in life has been taken. Church, if everything in your life can be taken, you don't have life at all. As a pastor, I am commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, I am commanded to charge you not to set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides for you. Now it's interesting that on a $1 bill, kids, you don't know what this is, you're used to cards, but back in the day when we were growing up, we had dollar bills. And there's this, this dollar bill, if you look on the back, on the right side, there's an animal, an eagle, this wing spread. And it should be a reminder to us Americans of Proverbs 23, 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to resist. When your eyes look on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. If missing out on a prophet or a deal not coming through, if either one of those devastates you, your idol is money and the perceived comfort it can bring. Look at this former rich man, now broke man, devastated by his losses. Look at him in verse 17. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This rich man used to hold big parties with massive firelights. But now that he's broke, he eats by himself in the dark. Lights cut off, heat cut off. Friends, gone. Cousins, crazy ones, gone. Darkness in this verse symbolizes his misery. Vexation refers to his frustration and mental anguish. Solomon, the writer of this book, has a father. His name is David. He was also a wealthy king. But he had something... He had something to say about this, and I think we should all make it our own. David said, if your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Your relationship with money should be a distant one. Now let's look at the cure. The cure for affluenza. What is the cure for affluenza? Find enjoyment in God and in His good gifts. Can affluenza be stopped? Is there anything that can inoculate us against it? Solomon says in verse 18, Behold, I have, I have seen what I have seen to be good and fitting. Now this word fitting means beautiful. In other words, don't pursue money. That's ugly. Let me show you something beautiful that is worth pursuing. Behold, what I have seen to be good and beautiful is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God gives him. <laughs> God created us, and he measured out our days. Ecclesiastes exalts joy of the mundane things. You need to experience the pleasure of simple things, like food, because God created your taste buds. The author's goal in this passage is, 
negatively to warn Israel of the vanity of pursuing wealth, but positively to encourage them to enjoy God's good, simple, daily gifts. He repeats it in verse 19. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Let's take a survey. How many of you this past, within the last year, you've either bought a gift card or you've received a gift card? Bought a gift card or received a gift card? Would you raise your hand? Okay, good. Not surprising, 76% of people in the United States purchased at least one gift card this year. And companies love this because many of those gift cards are only partially used, some not used at all. In the last 10 years, there have been over $1 trillion in unused gift cards. Who doesn't use gift cards? Well, here's what I'm telling you. It is possible to go through life without redeeming, so to speak, your gifts from God. God's given you food, but you don't redeem it by eating it with joy. God's given you a job, but you don't redeem it by working it with joy. God's given you a spouse, but you don't redeem that marriage by loving with joy. You don't have to be rich to find enjoyment each day. Start with the ordinary, plain, good gifts. Food, water, shelter, clothing. This passage clearly centers on God. He gives the ability to enjoy life, wealth, food. He's the giver. Verse 20, Solomon says, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him preoccupied with the joy in his heart. Solomon's cure for affluenza is to be satisfied with the stuff we already own. The old Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs suggested that we learn contentment by way of subtraction, not addition. In your natural state, you believe to achieve contentment, you have to attain more. Your heart tells you that your possessions need to be raised to the level of your desire. Your possessions need to be raised to the level of your desire. That's what your heart is saying, but that's simply not true. The Christian can bring his desire down to the level of his possessions. G.K. Chesterton said the same thing. There are two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more and more. The other is to desire less. When you see every good gift coming from the hand of God, you will not complain about the quality or the quantity. You will focus on the giver. To use Solomon's language, God gave you that lot, and whatever that lot is in life for you, it's a gift from God. Don't be sucked into the voices of our culture that say your possessions are inadequate. You have Christ, and He is adequate. He's the secret of contentment. Contentment is not found in a full bank account, but in an empty tomb. The only thing you need to live a joy-filled, contented, satisfied life is the risen Christ. Affluenza leaves you wanting more. Christ leaves you satisfied. 
Affluenza says money is your treasure. Christ says I am your treasure. Affluenza puts wealth before you and says look and live. God puts a cross before you and says look and live. The ultimate cure for affluenza is the cross. When you've been to the cross, your finish line changes. Culture no longer dictates what you're striving after. You strive after Christ and His likeness. And that striving alone will make you lay aside other strivings. Be ruthless in your battle against affluenza. Do something today that hurts. Do something today that affluenza says, you better not do that. Lose security, you better not do that. But you hear another voice. Christ saying, any sacrifice you make in my name will be rewarded in eternity. Culture says hoard. Christ says give. Culture says buy it, buy it, buy it. Christ says sacrifice it, sacrifice it, sacrifice it. Affluenza whispers lies. Christ whispers truth. Ultimately, the cure for affluenza is seeing Christ as better. Better than the nest egg. Better than the new boat. Better than the relationship the world says you need, but Christ says you don't. Well, we've now reached the peak of the passage. The climax. The top of the stairs. Now we're going to work our way down. Just like with any stairs, it takes longer to get up than it does go down. So, uh... When we're going down, we'll go at a little bit faster pace. Symptom number four of affluenza. You have money and lots of things that money can buy. But you don't enjoy life. To illustrate this point, Solomon is going to tell you a tragic tale. He says in verse 1, There's an evil that I have seen under the sun. So we know right away this is a stomach-churning, heartbreaking story. This is a man, verse 2, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity and a grievous evil. Solomon then goes on to unpack the story of this hypothetical man. By the way, this is not a real man. It's a hypothetical situation. Solomon is blowing up the details to emphasize the point. This man has fathered 100 children in verse 3. Children were viewed as a gift from God, even more in ancient cultures than today. So the more children you have, the more blessed by God you are. This man lives to be 2,000 years old in verse 6. That's incredible. He's lived twice as long as Methuselah, the oldest man to ever live. Again, in this culture, in this society, old age was viewed as a blessing from God. The older you lived, the more blessed you were. So he's blessed with kids. He's blessed with old age. He's the ultimate picture of a blessed man. His life is filled with blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. But verse 6 tells us that he can't enjoy them. Martin Luther called these verses a description of a rich man who lacks nothing for a good and happy life. And yet does not have one. To be able to fully and completely enjoy the things of life is a gift from God. Being able to enjoy the children God has given you. It is a gift from God. Being able to enjoy the house, the health, 
the friends, these are all gifts from God. Just because you have wealth doesn't mean that you can truly enjoy it. On Christmas this year, when your kids were receiving gifts, what happened? Well, they, they, they tore into the presents, paper flying everywhere, and then they opened the remote control car. They're filled with excitement. Their little faces are red. And then they quickly read the words on the side of the box. Batteries sold separately. Dreaded words. Such a sly trick. Well, adults, life is like that for you. When you tear into God's good gifts, whether it's a job or marriage or money, you need to read the words on the outside of the packaging. Joy sold separately. Satisfaction, contentment sold separately. Verse 3, his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Why is that? When you try to enjoy God's good gifts outside of God, you will be miserable. You know why? Because the gifts can never be the master. If gifts are your master, Jesus is not. Solomon is clear. We can live our lives one of two ways. Chasing after money, which will never satisfy us, which will leave us empty, or enjoying God's good, simple, daily gifts. It's interesting that in the New Testament, Jesus gives us the same two choices. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Solomon goes on to say that, that it is better to, this is strong language, that it is better to die in the womb than to be this rich man who lives 2,000 years and has 100 children but doesn't enjoy life. Eaton says the author is making this point. It's better to miscarry at birth than to miscarry throughout life. Symptom number five of affluenza. Like Adam and Eve, no matter how much you possess, you still have an insatiable desire for more. That's what verse 7 says. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. I read a study this week that they interviewed 1,000 millionaires. And the millionaires ranged from just having one million in the bank to having a hundred million in the bank. And each of them was asked, how much money would be enough for you? Where you feel comfortable. Where you would feel satisfied. And nearly everyone said double what they had. If he had one million, he said two. If he had a hundred million, he said two hundred million. I believe it was Carnegie who said, you rarely see millionaires smile. Let's put it on our level. <laughs> Let's bring it to us. No matter how much you make right now, no matter how much you make right now, I bet you're thinking, I'm right on the edge of having everything I need. I just need to make a little more money. You said that 10 years ago when you were making half of what you're making now. You will say it in 10 years from now when you're making even more. It's a crazy trick you play on yourself. 
You are always right on the edge of reaching it, but never quite there. Affluenza. Affluenza, the term, was first coined in America. But it didn't begin in America. It began in the garden. Adam and Eve's insatiable desire for more than what God provided for them. And Solomon says in verse 9, Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Affluenza says, You can have me and Christ. It's not either or. You can have me and Christ. Affluenza says, You can have me and Christ. The Alpha and Omega says, If you have Christ, you must put affluenza to death. Now I'm going to conclude... I'm going to conclude by talking to two groups of people. Non-Christians and then Christians. First, non-Christians. Non-Christian. The Old Testament prophets warned against the pursuit of wealth. The New Testament writers echoed that sentiment. Why the incredible emphasis throughout Scripture to guard yourself against the pursuit of wealth? It's a whole book saying guard yourself from the pursuit of wealth. Why? Well, that's simple. Jesus said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He even went further and said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Your love of money and pursuit of God's earthly gifts could keep you from God's ultimate gift. Salvation. Affluenza can send you to hell. But there's good news. There's good news. Listen in as I talk to the Christians. Christians. I know there's been a lot of talk lately about epidemics. The COVID-19 epidemic. I just spoke to you for a while about the affluenza epidemic. But Christ actually came to deal with the most deadly epidemic known to man. The sin epidemic. And while you're living in epidemics, you need deep doctrine. While you're living in epidemics, you need deep doctrine. And there's one very important doctrine put on display in this text. It's the doctrine of the incarnation. Jesus, who was rich, became poor. Wrapped himself in flesh to reach us. The first Adam sent us all spiraling down into the sin of affluenza. The last Adam rescued us from the power of affluenza. And he's coming back again to take us to another country where we will never again experience epidemics. For we are going to a country not affected by the fall. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.